Merry Christmas, everyone. So nice to see all of you here. Y'all look so handsome and beautiful. I want to start out with a question. It's going to seem like an odd question to ask you, but I'm going to ask it anyway. The question is this. How do you know if you know what the meaning of Christmas really is? And the reason I ask you that question is because there was a group of individuals who in their day knew everything you could know about Christmas and somehow still missed it. While another group of individuals who knew very, very little about Christmas found it. So it doesn't matter how much you know. Situation is, you may know a lot and still miss the real meaning of Christmas. So how do you know? I want to answer that question by telling you a true story, and then I'm going to close with a parable. The true story you're very familiar with. It's found in Matthew's Gospel in the second chapter. It's about some strangers from the east who showed up in Jerusalem and asked what they, I think, thought was a very obvious question that everybody would be asking and most people should be able to answer. Let me pick it up in verse 2. Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we've come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, For this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you who will be shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them to go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So who were these guys? Were they, as we oftentimes sing at Christmas, three kings from the Orient far? No. In fact, we don't even know if there's three of them or 30 of them. We say three because of the three gifts, but that doesn't mean there's only three. They were not kings. They were actually wise men, magi. They were Persians and were part of the Parthian Empire, which was a rival to the Roman empire in those days. They were learned men. They studied astronomy and astrology. They were priests in a religion called Zoroastrianism. So how did these guys who were pagan Gentiles, how did they even know to show up in Jerusalem and ask about the king of the Jews? I mean, these guys are enemies from Persia. Why would they take a thousand-mile trek all the way to Jerusalem risking their lives, bringing such expensive gifts. How did they know about this? 
Well, if you were to trace them back, you would realize that they have a long, long history. They go all the way back. Magi go all the way back to the time of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and even before him. In fact, one of Nebuchadnezzar's advisors, and we read about this in the book of Jeremiah, even has as part of his name, Magi, or wise one, and seemed to have been an advisor for Nebuchadnezzar. And if you and I could find a list of all the Magi who have ever lived, we wouldn't recognize any of them except one. Some of you might recognize this name, a Hebrew name, Daniel. Daniel was a Hebrew who had been taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar and his troops when they raided Jerusalem in 586 B.C. and took with them many of the young men, many of the population. Their goal was to take the brightest and the best and to indoctrinate them in the Babylonian way and make them good Babylonians, even putting them in government and leadership. But Daniel, Daniel stayed true to God and he stayed true to the word of God. But God was with Daniel and blessed him greatly. And Daniel grew in wisdom and insight, and Nebuchadnezzar saw that. Daniel had the ability, the God-given ability, to interpret dreams. And God even gave Daniel some prophetic dreams about the future. So Nebuchadnezzar made him the chief of all the wise men. And when the Persians came in and conquered Babylon, Daniel then served some of the leaders of Persia. And so what we believe is that his influence would have been felt and would have continued for centuries and centuries. His words, his thoughts, his ideas. And it would have been passed on from one generation of magi to the next generation of magi until you get to this time when Jesus was born. These men were expecting it. Because Daniel, in one of the dreams that God gave him about the future, in Daniel chapter 9, somewhere between verse 24 and 27, actually writes down some of the math, some of the calculation as to when Messiah will be born. These guys were expecting it. In addition, there was that star. Now, astronomers and as astrologers, they studied the stars, and in the ancient times, whenever a new phenomenon would take place in the night sky, they oftentimes associated that with the birth of a king or the birth of someone really important. Just as with a falling star, they would think that somebody significant important had just died. Add to that, and the historians of Rome at that time tell us, there was an idea that some kind of messianic figure was about to appear on the earth. So the atmosphere was completely ripe, was completely ready. No wonder they show up in Jerusalem and ask the question, with an attitude of like, everybody should know this. And it was a troubling question. Where is this newborn king of the Jews? Everybody in Jerusalem was troubled by that because Jerusalem had a king, a self-proclaimed king, a Gentile king named Herod who finagled a deal with Rome to make Judea his kingdom and therefore the Jews his subjects. And he was a wicked, evil man. Not only that, but Herod was paranoid, always fearful that somebody was out for his throne, his kingdom. In fact, Augustus Caesar once said, it is better to be Herod's swine than his son, because he killed a couple of his sons who he thought were after his throne. And that's why he called the scholars in and asked them, 
the question, what is this about a Messiah? Where is he supposed to be born? And these theologians, these, these men who understood the Old Testament and the prophecies, had no problem telling him, well, Micah the prophet tells us that he'll be born in Bethlehem, six miles away from here. So he sent the wise men on a journey to go ahead and find him and please bring back report because I want to go and worship him too. And we know what that means, don't we? It means I want to send my soldiers there once you tell me where he is and I'll eliminate him and his parents and anybody associated with him. So the wise men went and they finally came to that house where Jesus was. Now Jesus would have been somewhere between two months of age and two years of age. We're not sure where exactly between that he would be in terms of his age. So how do you get, how do you get two years? Well, when the wise men don't go back to Jerusalem because God warned them not to, and Herod realizes that he's been tricked, he remembers the time the wise men said they saw the star. He does the calculation that was two years to now. And so he sends his soldiers into Bethlehem. He says, kill every Jewish boy two years of age and under. So Jesus is somewhere in that span. When the wise men walk into the house, they do three interesting things. The first thing they do is they bow down. And in the Greek, the literal translation, that word bow means to kiss down. So it's the idea of bending over and kissing feet. So you can imagine these men, these wise men, right, from afar with you know, their beautiful robes as we think about them. You know, imagine them bowing down and kissing the feet of a two-month-old or a two-year-old. And then it says, number two, they worshiped. And the word worship there means to bring up. It's the idea of bringing up praise and honor and glory to one greater than oneself. And then they give three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, I'm not sure the wise men, the magi, understood the significance of the gifts that they were giving. They were expensive gifts, but I'm not sure they really knew what they meant. But in hindsight, you and I can look back because we know about the life of Jesus and we can see what they symbolized and how God used them to symbolize something pretty significant. First of all, gold. Gold is, is a gift that you give to a king. How many of you are hoping for some gold underneath a tree this, this evening or tomorrow? That'd be nice, wouldn't it? Gold for a king. Frankincense was an incense that was used when you would worship a deity in the ancient times. And so frankincense, because before them is a child who's more than just king of the Jews, he's king of the universe, he's the son of God, worthy to be worshipped. And finally, mirror. Myrrh is an expensive spice used in lots of different things and also used in embalming. I don't think they understood the significance of that gift, but we understand its significance because we know that God's son died on a cross as John spoke about in his spoken word and gave his life for you and for me and rose again on the third day and exchanges his death for our death, our judgment, and hands to us the gift of eternal life if we'll trust him. And then these wise men went on their way home. Now, in this story, there's a, a, a situation that's always bothered me. I, maybe it's bothered you as well. I've oftentimes wondered, why did those religious scholars in Bethlehem 
who were able to tell Herod the, the, the scripture from Micah that he was going to be born in Bethlehem, why didn't those religious scholars in Jerusalem, why didn't they go to Bethlehem? Why didn't they kneel down? Why didn't they kiss down and worship up and, and offer him great gifts and acknowledge him? Is it because they didn't believe in a Messiah? No, they believed in a Messiah. They were looking for a Messiah, but not the kind of Messiah that Jesus represented. They weren't looking for a Messiah that they would bow down to. They were looking for a Messiah that would bow down to them. I don't mean physically bow down to them, but bow down to their agenda, support their agenda, carry out their agenda. And what was their agenda? Not much different from a lot of agendas today. For instance, they had a very political agenda that they wanted Jesus to fulfill for them. People have political agendas today. Have you noticed that? They had an economic agenda that they wanted Jesus to support. They had a militaristic agenda they wanted Jesus to support. They had a religious agenda that Jesus wanted, they wanted Jesus to support. They didn't look at Jesus as a savior. Their savior was the law, was their traditions, was their own kind of manufactured religion. They just wanted Jesus to support that. They wanted him to oppress their oppressors. And nothing has changed today. There are a lot of people today who are very familiar with Christmas, but from a distance. They like the lights and the trees and the festivities and the gifts and even going to services like this and the music. It's all very wonderful, but they're afraid to get too close because Jesus does not fit the profile that they have for the kind of Messiah they would like to have. They too want a Messiah who will support their worldview their political view. They want a Republican Messiah. They want a Democratic uh, Messiah. They want an independent Messiah. They want a socialist Messiah. They, it, on the list goes. They want a, a Messiah that will have a certain economic perspective and a Messiah who will have a certain moral perspective on life. They want a Messiah that will have a certain cultural perspective. And the problem is, you get close to Jesus and you find out he's nobody's Messiah. He comes with his own agenda. And he says, and it's one of the most troubling verses for some people, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And that's where a lot of people just kind of back away and say, I don't know if I want that kind of Messiah. A Messiah that tells me I have to bow to him. And then there are those who are like Herod. They just, they, they just don't believe in a God. They don't believe in a Messiah because they, they don't want anybody taking over their throne. So the way they deal with it is they eliminate God by just saying he doesn't exist. But I'm still back to that question. If you can know so much about Christmas, if you can know so much about Jesus, what is it that keeps you then from, from really surrendering to him? How can you... How can you know a lot about Christmas and still miss Christmas? And that's why I want to tell you this little parable. It was written in 1905. And uh, it appeared on December 10th of that year in what was called then the New York World Sunday. It's about a couple, Jim and Della Young, who are just so in love with each other. 
they had fallen on hard times, didn't have much money, barely got by, lived in a very modest apartment. And on that Christmas, they so wanted to give each other a gift that would express the depth of their love for one another. Della sat in her apartment, looking out the window, feeling rather blue and sad. She'd only been able to scrape up and save $1.87, which even in those days wouldn't buy much. So she turned around and was looking around the apartment and caught a glimpse of herself in a very dim mirror. She saw her hair. She had remarkable hair, the kind of hair that if the Queen of Sheba had been alive, she would have been very envious of. It was long. It was brown. It was beautiful. It was wavy. And from a distance, it looked like a golden river with waves. And she thought to herself, maybe I should sell my hair. She gathered her coat and went to a hair salon, and there she met a woman and asked her if she'd be interested in buying her hair, and the woman was more than happy because the hair was absolutely beautiful. So she sold her hair. The woman cut her hair off, made it very short, and paid her $20, which in those days was a lot of money. Della was so excited, she went to every shop she could find to try to find that perfect gift that would express how much she loved her husband, Jim. And she found a beautiful chain with a fob on the end of it that she thought to herself, this platinum chain is going to go so beautifully with my husband's pocket watch, a family heirloom, which face was so smooth and so dignified. She thought, he'll attach it to that, let that let that chain stick out, and everybody will know what a beautiful watch he has. He'll love it. She paid the money and brought it home and couldn't wait to give it to him. When he finally got home that night, she could tell by the way he looked at her that he was a bit shocked. There was a lot of hair missing. So she ran into his arms and gave him a hug and squeezed him and said, oh, Jim, oh, Jim, I had to cut it off because I, I, I sold it and, and I wanted to buy you something that would show you just how much I love you. He squeezed her a little bit and said, I want you to know, Della, whether your hair is short or whether your hair is long, I still love you the same. And then he said to her, I got you something for Christmas. He reached into his pocket and he pulled out two beautiful hair combs with beautiful gems on them. He said, I saw you looking at this in the store window a couple weeks ago, and I knew we couldn't afford it, but I managed to buy it for you. And she began to cry. She said, oh, Jim. She said, don't worry. My hair will grow back, and then I will use those combs. She said, Jim, I have something exciting for you. And she reached into her pocket, and she pulled out that beautiful chain that looked like it had been spun in the moonlight. And she said, this is for your pocket watch. And Jim laughed. He said, I used my pocket watch to buy those combs. <laughs> oh, Henry wrote that story, The Gift of the Magi, because he wanted to communicate a very important truth, and that is this, that the greatest expression of love is when you give what matters most to you. She gave her hair, he gave away his family heirloom, the pocket watch. How much does God love you and me? Enough to give away his son who died on the cross so we could be forgiven, who rose again as proof that what he did accomplished what God intended. 
on this Christmas Eve, what is the greatest gift that you and I can give to God? What is it that, that proves that we really know the meaning of Christmas? And the answer is very simple. You give God what matters to you most, your life, your very soul. That's how you know you know what Christmas really means. It's when you say, God, here's my life. Thank you for giving me your life. Would you bow your heads with me, please? I just on this Christmas Eve want to give many of you an opportunity to talk to God for just a moment. And for those of you who have given your life to Christ at some point in time, would you just silently where you are, would you just tell God, God, I, I, I'm here to renew that commitment I made. My life belongs to you. Thank you for giving your life for me. There are some of you, perhaps, that are unsure whether you've ever made that decision or not. I don't think tonight, on the spur of the moment, you're going to make a decision. But I do believe that there are some of you who've been wrestling with God for weeks, perhaps months, maybe even longer, and you know, you know it's time, and, and you haven't, and tonight you sense God, not me, but you sense God saying to you, this is the night. Tonight I want you to say yes to me. Tonight I want you to surrender yourself to me. I wanna come and I wanna fill your life. Tonight's the night to hand over your mind and your will and your emotions and your body and, and everything that's about you and everything that you have to God. All you have to do right where you are is simply say to him silently, Lord, I'm surrendering tonight. I'm handing my life over to you in response to the fact that you handed your son's life over for me. I acknowledge him to be the son of God. I ask for the forgiveness of my sin. God, I pray, help me as I enter into 2024 to begin a new walk with you. If you prayed that prayer or something like it, in the pew backs ahead of you is this little folder that says, I said yes. Inside of it is some great, great inspirational material. You'll hear and read some stories of people who've made that decision at Wooddale and how it's changed their life, how Christ has changed their life. On the front, it's like a sticky note. We just ask you to fill that out. And when you leave, just quickly stop by door one or door two. You'll see a big banner that said, I said yes. Just hand that sticky note in. We've got some things we want to send you because we want to help you in this journey. In fact, I'd like to invite you to join me as we begin 2024. We're going to actually go on a journey with Jesus to the Gospel of Mark. And even if you're a skeptic, even if you were an atheist or know an atheist, tell them to come. Because, you know, Jesus says, try it out. Try his teachings out. See if his ways work. Can't hurt. Join us for that amazing journey. But let us know if we can help you now.